This is The Weekly for Friday, September 13th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Congress is back in town, the president offering his recommendations, and the NRA is taking a stand. The gun debate once again front and center in our nation's capital. It is a debate over background checks, red flag laws, and of course, the Second Amendment. This week, we talked to Amy Swearer. She serves as a senior legal policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. And in one of her essays, she writes about tackling gun violence without trampling civil liberties. That's where we begin. Amy Swearer, I want to begin with something that you wrote earlier this year. It's available online at heritage.org. With regard to the Second Amendment, you said, quote, it is a fundamental part of the nation's scheme of ordered liberty. Explain. So the Second Amendment, just like all of the other enumerated amendments that we have in the Bill of Rights, uh, is part of, again, what we'd call this scheme of ordered liberty. That is, this set of protections that uh, really form the basis of what we'd consider American freedom, the American way of life, uh, American democracy. And part of that is the right of individual law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms. Uh, And that's both for purposes of individual self-defense, but then also collectively as as uh, this this collective protection against whether it's internal threats or external threats, um, but to essentially place the power in the hands of the citizens as kind of this counterbalance of of tyranny of external threats, um, and and again just as as a individual protection against crime and and against those who would seek to infringe on individual rights. So when you hear critics of the Second Amendment say that it was written at a time when we had pistols and rifles, now we have magazines and assault weapons, is there a differentiation between what we saw when the Second Amendment was written and what we're seeing in 2019? So the, the Second Amendment doesn't protect specific weapons, it protects an idea. And that's, again, this idea of putting that power in the hands of, of individual citizens to defend themselves and to defend uh, the, the American scheme of liberty. Uh, and it's the same concept that you'd see with the First Amendment. So when the First Amendment was written, uh, you know, there were, frankly, entire religions that didn't exist. There were, uh, you know, the internet is, is a concept that, you know, you ask the framers, been like, what are you talking about? Um, but that because it protects an idea uh, of you know, what it is to be fundamental to what are these fundamental rights? What are these protections that Americans should have? That that idea continues to expand and encompass even changes to existing technology. Um, So I'd say that's true of the Second Amendment. It's true of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. Um, And frankly, we're seeing some of those conversations come up in the Fourth Amendment. How does the Fourth Amendment cover technological changes to GPS, data tracking, those sorts of things? Um, You know, and again, because it protects an idea, and not specific, you know, means of, you know, of effectuating that idea. Um, it's really this broader conversation than just, well, this didn't exist at the time because the idea itself encompasses those changes in technology. Whether it's Columbine or Parkland High School or Sandy Hook or the recent attacks in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, and more recently near Odessa, Texas, the shock and horror of the shootings and then thoughts and prayers and then the call to do something, but nothing seems to get done. So my question is, what, if anything, should get done? So you're right that there... 
we see these sorts of atrocities, and they are atrocities, and they are things that I I think sometimes gets lost in this conversation. Is there's no sides to that opinion. I mean, everyone looks at this, and, and there's not a single person whose heart doesn't break who who isn't you know, fully aware of how devastating these events are. And, and I think you're right that there is this impulse to want to do something because we see this and we're like, how do we stop this from happening? Um, but in that. You know, sometimes there's this rush, this sort of knee-jerk reaction um, instead of sitting back and saying, okay, one, what is the scope of what we're looking at? And two, what are the underlying causes and how do we do something effectively? And again, because we're dealing with constitutional protections and things that are, um, you know, just by necessity implicating the Second Amendment, you know, the, the other question should be how do we do something in a way that's also constitutional, that isn't broadly infringing on the rights of law-abiding Americans? And so I think out of that, when you, you look at, especially with mass public shootings, some options that come up that, one, could be effective, and, and two, refrain from uh, really punishing law-abiding Americans for the actions of criminals, uh, are things that, like this concept of red flag laws, are very narrow and specific to dangerous individuals that are looking at identifying these individuals and intervening in these specific acts before they happen, as opposed to just broadly you know, and preemptively saying, well, we're going to impose gun control on you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who were never going to be dangerous in the first place. And so I think that's where we should be looking. Because, as you know, one of the questions that comes up is that the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, is inherent in our Constitution, but also the right to go to a church, to go to a Walmart, to go to a shopping mall, and to go to high school and not worry about being uh, gunned down in mass shootings. Well, absolutely. I mean, like, again, everyone is in agreement that the sorts of fear that these mass public shootings strike into people is emotionally, psychologically devastating. Um, though I'd also say that when, when we step back and we look at the reality of, of mass public shootings, even though we have seen a slight increase in the rates of these mass public shootings, overall, when we're talking about uh, what percentage of overall gun violence it actually is, it's really a fraction of a percent of all gun deaths every year, um, that realistically, it, this is not the way in which most Americans are, are going to interact with gun violence. And, and I thoroughly understand that, you know, when you see these shootings happen, you know, once, twice a month, um, especially when they're kind of back to back like that, that the psychological and emotional impact that they have is devastating because it makes us think, you know, that that random nature of these attacks makes us think, what if I go to Walmart? You know, what if I go out to a movie theater? Um, but I think part of that is being able to step back and look at the reality of those statistics and to say, even though this is slightly increasing, this is not, you know, is this really a crisis? Is this something um, that necessitates dramatic, drastic actions, um, you know, such as gun confiscation or, you know, some sort of broad measure uh, implicating the rights of millions of Americans? Um, but again, I, I get that it's hard because we see these violent actions, and it, and it really does emotionally, psychologically impact us. And as you well know, Congress is immersed in this debate. I want you to react to what the president said uh, on August the 18th, a couple of days after the second mass shooting that month, in which he talked about background checks and mental health. People don't realize we have very strong background checks right now. You go in to buy a gun, you have to sign up. There are a lot of background checks that have been approved over the years. Uh, so I'll have to see what it is. But Congress is meeting bipartisan. A lot of people want to see something happen. But just remember this big mental problem. And we do have a lot of background checks right now. That from the president last month. And then there was this from the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer of New York. 
Yeah, I'd say there's one word that describes Mitch McConnell's attitude on this vital issue of life and death, and that is duck. Duck, because he's saying, let the president decide. But then he was asked here, do you support universal background checks for commercial sales? And he ducked again. He's afraid of this issue, but that's not what a leader should be doing. Amy Swear, address the politics behind all of this. Sure. Well, specifically when we're talking about background checks and universal background checks, it's hard because you know, sometimes people are, are saying these words, they're saying these things, but they're not really understanding, one, you know, what is the state of the law right now? Uh, but, but two, also, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about universal background checks? Um, and, and so right now, with existing federal law, if, if you purchase a firearm from any sort of brick-and-mortar store or even, you know, at any time it's from someone out of state, you have to go through a background check. Um, these are what are called FFLs, federal firearms licensees. Um, so, again, any sort of brick-and-mortar store, any sort of entity that is selling these on a regular basis for profit, they are conducting background checks. Um, and so the question is, you know, how far do you expand those for private sales? Um, and there are different, you know, lengths that, that you can go to. You can uh, – I think there's been some proposed legislation legislation that would say, you know, do you have to go pay an FFL to conduct a background check anytime you temporarily transfer it, you know, to a, to a family member or a friend f- that you know is a low risk that doesn't have a, a disqualifying history? I mean, there are others that would just say, you know, can we expand background checks to, um, you know, stranger to stranger sales within existing states? Um, and so it's, it's kind of convoluted when people talk about it because it's unclear sometimes, you know, what exactly uh, are you referring to? You know, how, how broad do you want that background check to be? And so I think that plays into the politics as well. Sometimes people tend to talk around and over each other without specifying what it is they're referring to. Um, but then also on top of that, you know, playing into this this political mess really um, is the fact that these can burden, it place sometimes significant burdens on, again, law-abiding citizens who are making low-risk, sometimes temporary transfers of firearms, because it would involve them having to go down to a, a third party, to a, an FFL, and pay them to conduct a background check and then, you know, wait out that time period for that background check. The state has a waiting period in terms of days, you know, waiting that length out as well. Um, and then if it's a temporary transfer, you know, having to go back and do it again to get the firearm back. Um, and so I think those are some of the concerns that you're seeing with this back and forth um, between the, the president, between Senator Schumer, between Mitch McConnell, um, and, and frankly, just generally across the board in the United States, um, is that to me, it's less of a political concern, because I think generally, we all agree, you know, there are certain individuals who are disqualified from having firearms. Uh, and I don't think anybody wants them to have possession of those firearms. But it becomes a question of you know, how far can you expand the existing system without imposing severe burdens on, on law abiding citizens. And so um, to me, it's less of a political issue, more of a practical issue um, that is made worse by you know, some of the problems we have with communicating what it is we're talking about. You are one of the go-to people on this issue here in Washington and certainly at the Heritage Foundation. Why is this your area of expertise? How did you f- decide to focus on guns, the Second Amendment, and what we'll be talking about in just a moment, the red flag law? So I actually came into this through uh, kind of a roundabout way. Uh, during law school, I, I clerked at a public defender's office, ran a mental health docket, um, and then came into policy from the aspect of overcriminalization, which is this idea of, you know, we have too many laws, people are, are being penalized for things that they didn't know they were doing wrong, um, and looking at criminal justice reform. And out of that, uh, I started writing on the Second Amendment rights of nonviolent felons, this idea of, you know, why can't Martha Stewart own a gun? You know, yeah, she committed a crime, but she's not inherently dangerous. 
Um, and then around that time, the Heritage Foundation um, really started to see, especially with some of these increases in, in mass public shootings and um, things around the time of the Sutherland Spring shooting in Texas, um, and then, of course, Parkland, to really step into that zone and to say we need conservative voices stepping into the gun policy debate um, to, one, look at the scope of you know, what is the reality of gun violence, and then, two, you know, how do we effectively communicate good policy that works within the existing Second Amendment framework that that can solve some of these problems without broadly burdening law-abiding Americans and, and their right to keep and bear arms. Um, and so it just kind of made sense for me to make that transition because I'd been writing on some of these issues. Um, and, and so that's, again, just kind of how I came into it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really grateful to Heritage for kind of taking on this role and, and allowing me to to help take on this role. Bottom line, with specific regard to background checks, what is your view? What do you think conservatives would accept? And at what point do you infringe on one's rights? Well, I think when you start looking at things, like I think it's HR8, which is this universal background check measure that has been passed by the House, um, things like that, I mean, they they just go too far, Um, especially when you consider that uh, when we look at studies of how felons are actually getting their, their firearms, these sorts of, of sales that might be uh, in, inhibited by mandatory background checks um, play just a small part of how felons are actually getting their guns. Um, generally speaking, they're getting them from the, the underground, the black market, or they're stealing them or going through other means, you know, where people who are already willing to sell guns to felons, which is illegal. And those same people are not going to be deterred just because you said, can you please do a background check now? Um, so again, it's it's kind of the small sliver of, of how they're getting their guns in their first place. Um, and then when you, as part of that, impose such broad burdens like HR8 does on law-abiding citizens, which would, again, anytime there's a temporary transfer under HR8, if you had someone who's going out of town for a couple of weeks, didn't want to leave their guns in their house, wanted to temporarily transfer them to a neighbor to say, hey, can you take care of these? The neighbor's a concealed carry permit holder. You know, nothing in their background. They, again, have to go down to an FFL, pay this third party to conduct the background check, possibly wait a couple of days depending on the state. Then when they come back, do it all over again. Um, you know, so it's, it's things like that where, where you're kind of weighing the balance of, one, is this effective? And I don't think in the long run it's very effective. And then two, on top of that, you also then have these burdens on these low-risk transfers. So I think things like that kind of go too far. Um, but when you do look at things like uh, within the same state right now, you're seeing, uh, you know, there are certain websites you can go to and, and purchase uh, firearms from individuals within your own state, um, you know, who are not federal firearms licensees. And, and I think when you're talking about those sorts of permanent transfers between strangers, there might be some room for background checks, mandated background checks there. It becomes a question of, you know, how do you effectively open up the system uh, for people who may not have ready access to an FFL? Um, you know, how do you ensure that FFLs um, are not scamming customers, if you will? Because now if you have to go to an FFL, you know, they can charge whatever they want. You know, so kind of how do you take care of some of those problems? And I think there's room, not necessarily for compromise, but for sitting down and, and listening and, and figuring out an effective system of, of capturing that more realistic segment of, of firearm transfers. Um, but again, you know, I, I think some of the things that are being proposed right now, are they just go too far considering the very limited effectiveness that it's likely to have. And the gunman who has since died in Odessa in Midland, Texas, apparently, reportedly, purchased the gun through a private dealer. So on that specific area, is there a loophole? Well, it's not necessarily a, a loophole, though. 
the information coming out of Odessa is very unclear to me. So it, it appears that he did fail a background check at some point, um, but it's unclear to me why, because it, it doesn't seem that anything in his criminal record would have actually been disqualifying. But regardless, let's let's assume that it was the case that the only way he was able to get a firearm was through this private dealer. This is actually um, kind of a an odd scenario. This is not something that we see with most mass public shooters. Uh, so almost unanimously with mass public shooters, the problem is not that they're avoiding background checks. The problem is that they were able to pass background checks in the first place, that they didn't have a disqualifying criminal or mental health history. And that's really the problem we're seeing with with mass shooters is, you know, how do we better identify them uh, and ensure that we're intervening so that they don't have access to guns when they are becoming objectively dangerous. We're talking with Amy Swearer of the Heritage Foundation in Dayton, Ohio, as you well know, nine people were killed in less than 30 seconds. So part of the debate is also these assault weapons that that cause mass shootings and and mass casualties? Should there be restrictions on that? So again, this comes down to having to step back and really look at the reality of what we're talking about. So when people use the term assault weapons, it's, it's because they're trying to imply that there are no legitimate civilian functions for these firearms. Um, but we're talking about a, a firearm, a type of firearm that's owned by you know, millions of law-abiding citizens who use them for countless numbers of times every year for lawful purposes. I mean, they're actually the least likely type of firearm to be used to commit gun homicides. Um, and, and frankly, they're matched about 50-50 in terms of mass public shooters. Um, a, a large number of mass public shooters also use handguns. And, and so w- what we're actually seeing then is a firearm that isn't necessary to commit mass public shootings um, in terms of effectiveness, which I know it's kind of grotesque to think about the effectiveness of different weapons in mass public shootings. Um, but then when you balance that out between these have a legitimate lawful function for millions of Americans who own them, uh, who use them because they are effective for self-defense. Uh, they, they are effective for sporting and hunting purposes. Um, it, you know, And so the question then becomes, do we foreclose a commonly owned lawful firearm with legitimate lawful civilian purposes simply because you know, a fraction of a percent of all gun deaths every year are attributable to them? And, and I'd say when we look at that constitutionally, the Constitution would foreclose that, that that is not a balancing test the Constitution would allow. And that also, from a, a practical perspective, um, you know, if, if you were to reduce the type of firearms that law-abiding, or that, excuse me, if you were to reduce the, the type of firearms that these mass public shooters could use to just say handguns, um, they, they, they've shown time and time again that, you know, it, it doesn't matter necessarily what type of firearm they have. Um, you look at uh, the the mass shootings in Virginia Beach, the mass shootings uh, at, at Virginia Tech. These were individuals who used handguns um, and were able to kill large numbers of individuals in a short period of time. Because, again, the, these these are individuals who are planning this, generally speaking. And so their ability to go out and get multiple firearms, to go just get multiple magazines, um, you know, frankly, the, the type of firearm itself is not a massive factor in, in one, whether they're going to commit a mass shooting, and, and two, whether they're going to be successful in killing large numbers of people. Um, so, you know, again, it's it's that hard sort of thing to think about because we do we do see these guns that to a lot of people look scary and they don't understand why any civilian would want to own them. Um, but the reality is th- these are not the real problem. This is sort of a um, – it, it's an ineffective fix. Um, if I could even go so far as to say it's a fix, because frankly, I, I don't think in reality we're going to see it affect uh, any meaningful, it, it's not going to meaningfully affect either rates of mass public shootings or, or gun deaths or anything of that nature. And this may be 
beyond your area of expertise, but it does seem like we have more mass shootings here in the U.S. than elsewhere in the world. And my question is why? It is a good question, um, though I, I would push back a bit and say there there have been some analyses of this uh, of this question that would say we're actually not too far above the, the world, the global average. Um, and also when you take into account sort of mass killings in other countries that don't involve firearms, um, you know, that, that that is a factor as, as well. So you're seeing other types of mass killings in those countries. Um, but I, I think when we're talking about an issue of gun violence, it, it's a very complicated, complex issue. And I don't think there's any one simple answer to why the United States has, frankly, seen a, a small increase in, in rates of mass public shootings in recent years. Um, you know, and it's 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 a question that, frankly, I, I'm not sure there's, a, again, just there's, there's not a good, simple answer to it. Um, but I, I think there are avenues that we can agree, given the Second Amendment, might be uh, more effective at sort of reducing this rate and, and intervening with individuals before it happens. Um, and, and I think those are the sorts of solutions we need to be looking at. And my sense is that people who see this on the news, they, they almost feel helpless and they get angry and they think, why does this keep happening? Yeah, no, and, and it is. And there does seem to, to be a bit of a, a copycat effect as well. I know there have been some studies that have come out where, you know, in a sense, it's every time there's a mass shooting, it, it lowers the threshold for the next individual who might be thinking about it. Um, that this Again, this copycat effect, if you will. Um, though, again, you know, I, I would say when you step back and you kind of look at the broad scope of this, um, this is realistically not something that Americans are facing every day, you know, that this risk to any one individual is just from a statistical standpoint, incredibly low. Um, but, but again, I fully understand when you're seeing this on the news, it doesn't feel that way. Um, that really what is most impacting Americans is this emotional, psychological impact of seeing this trauma, of seeing these communities breaking. Um, but I, I think it is important to, to take that step back and look at the statistical reality as well. So let's turn to the issue of red flag laws, because on the website at heritage.org, you go through a series of questions, including what's wrong with the current laws. So let me ask you some of the questions and you can answer them. First of all, what are red flag laws and, and what's wrong with some of the current legislation? Red flag laws are, are again, these – it's a general phrase for a general idea of trying to better identify and intervene with individuals who are becoming increasingly dangerous um, but who may not have reached a point where they have a disqualifying criminal or mental health history. That is, we're, we're seeing signs that they're dangerous but they haven't yet committed a crime or they haven't yet reached a point of mental health crisis so that we can have them civilly committed. And this is a problem that we've seen time and time again with regard to mass public shootings in particular, where just across the board you have individuals who, even if they're not clinically insane, they're not actively psychotic, they are a lot of times mentally and emotionally unstable, and people are seeing signs that they are dangerous. Uh, If you think about Parkland, for example, that was an individual who had repeated signs that that he was engaging in threatening behaviors, um, both inside and and out of school. He had called the police saying, you know, I'm not in a good emotional place. I need help. Um, But but nothing was ever done. Uh, Or, you know, conversely, you you see other other situations where, uh, you know, it may not have been as acute, but there were still definitely signs along the way that that this was an individual who who may be in need of help. Um, And so red flag laws are trying to capture that segment of the, the population. And there's a number of ways that 
that states have done that. Um, but generally speaking, it, it involves allowing friends, family members, coworkers, it, it, people who are close to that individual to either petition law enforcement or to petition the courts to say, hey, look, we're seeing these signs that this person is dangerous and we want you to hold a hearing or to have an investigation in, into whether this person needs to be temporarily disarmed. Um, now, again, because every state has been different, and, and at the moment there are 17 states plus the District of Columbia that have some form of this legislation, um, you know, one of the things we have to be worried about when we're talking about um, restricting someone's fundamental constitutional right is due process, uh, th- this concept of fairness, uh, of ensuring that we're not just arbitrarily taking away someone's right w- without legitimate reason. Because it could be a slippery slope. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, so some of some of the, the concerns that have come up are, you know, how are we defining dangerousness? So, you know, we never want it to be the case that, you know, someone sees someone in a, in a political shirt they disagree with, you know, whether it's a MAGA hat or a Bernie hat or, or something of that nature and says, well, I think that's inherently dangerous and you're inherently violent. You know, we don't wanting this we don't want this becoming this sort of political, you know, who's actually the dangerous person here, but to have objective, uh, measurable, definable risks of what it means to be dangerous. Um, and then also ensuring that that there's a high burden of proof on these, that it's not just the case that someone can come in and make an assertion without any other evidence. And all of a sudden, you know, an individual has their rights taken away um, because, you know, someone who just wants to harass them or uh, abuse these laws is is making assertions without any evidence. And then I'd also say one of, one of the, the other things we need to be looking at is ensuring that these laws are not disarming people for the sake of disarming them, but that they're being hooked up with existing mental health and treatment structures so that if you know, someone is dangerous because they're not mentally in a good place, um, that you can get them that treatment, that you're giving them a, a way and a process to get back to a place where they are mentally stable and they can have their rights restored. Because again, these should be temporary measures. These shouldn't impose lifelong consequences like you see with civil commitments. Um, they're, they're sort of a stopgap, this intermediate measure, if you will. Um, and so I think those are some of the things we look for in terms of you know, what individual states are doing um, as to whether there's sufficient due process there. Based on that, what is a so-called good red flag law? What would a bad one be? So I don't think there's any state right now that has one that's perfect. Um, But I'd say a good red flag law is one that, you know, again, has very definable uh, measures of dangerousness um, where, you know, where we're agreeing that it's a narrow set of objective factors um, that aren't making things like lawful gun ownership inherently suspect. I'd say uh, a red flag law that uses high burdens of proof, um, like clear and convincing evidence uh, that... Uh, doesn't allow for this process to get drawn out because I think one of the other concerns is, you know, if you have someone file a petition and then they have to give up their guns and then wait, you know, up to 30 days for a hearing, you've you've essentially taken away someone's constitutional right for an extended period of time without a hearing. Um, you know, so ensuring that the if if there is an emergency order, um, you know, so someone's guns are confiscated or or seized um, in an emergency fashion, that there is a hearing as soon as practicable, um, or at least within a, a limited time frame, you know, within the next couple of days, um, that we should really be ensuring that that due process is not just sufficient, but quick and fast and preferably prior to that seizure. Um, so that's the other thing we'd look for. Um, again, anything to the nature of, of hooking it up with existing 
uh, infrastructure in, in terms of like mental health treatment and, and uh, existing addiction treatment centers uh, because we want people, again, uh, to be able to be rerouted, to be given resources, um, you know, to, to have a plan for them to say, okay, this is how I know I, I get my firearms back. Um, and then temporary in nature. Um, so none of these should be going beyond a year. And it should always be the case that the government or you know, whoever is petitioning the court has to continue to prove that this person is dangerous. Um, so we want that burden of proof to, again, be high and on the person alleging that that there's a dangerous situation. Um, and then also at the end, there should be a clear process for how that person gets their firearms back and, and what is happening. Um, and, and along with that, we, we should see some of the same due process protections you see for civil commitment procedures. Um, so they should have a right to cross-examine witnesses. They, they should have a right to present evidence on their behalf, to have an attorney present with them. Um, so again, just some of these basic things that we would consider so uh, fundamental to any other hearing or any other process we have in the criminal or civil justice system. Uh, you know, conversely, bad red flag laws would, would neglect a lot of that. So I think some of the problems we're seeing in some states um, is for what are called ex parte orders, um, which is kind of an emergency order uh, where it's a hearing done without the person knowing about it. Uh, often that should be because it's it's an immediate, imminent, you know, extreme risk that this needs to be done right this second. Um, and you know, there are some states in which you really just need probable cause, which is a spurned ex-lover saying, you know, he, he did this, he said this to me. It's a very low bar to hop over um, to then take away someone's fundamental right for up to 30 days. And so those are the kinds of things we want to avoid. You also want to avoid uh, factors for dangerousness that would include in, in some states, did this person recently buy a firearm? We shouldn't be making lawful gun ownership inherently suspect uh, or anything of that nature. Um, and it's a, one of the other failings that you're seeing in, in some states is a failure to adequately, um, you know, give give people an opportunity to say what is it you need to do to get these guns back, um, either by hooking it up with an existing mental health treatment center, um, or it really just comes across as well. We took away your guns, and that's it. You know, good good luck with the rest of this. Um, and, and I think you know that that's bad for the person who has their guns taken away because they. They're not getting help that they otherwise need. And it's also bad for the trust in the system uh, where it comes across as, you know, we're really just taking away guns because we don't like guns. And that um, it really undermines just societal communal trust in that system. And, and people then tend to want to avoid even getting involved in it to begin with. Based on all that we've talked about, and by the way, thank you for a very interesting conversation. I'm going to ask what admittedly is a simple question and a complicated answer. How do you preserve the Second Amendment, keep constitutional rights, and yet also keep more Americans safe from these mass shootings? How do you strike the balance? Well, I'd say there are probably two main ways that, especially at Heritage, we've been focusing on. I'd say from a more immediate standpoint of what do we do right now about risks that we're seeing um, is to, again, instead of imposing broad measures on uh, you know, just law-abiding Americans who are never going to be dangerous is to look at, again, these these very narrow, more targeted, specific interventions. You know, how do we disarm specific individuals who are objectively becoming dangerous? And I, I think red flag laws can strike that balance. Not all of them do, uh, but but there's at least the opportunity there because the, the general idea is consistent with that. And then from a, a broader standpoint, 
you know, instead of looking at how do we treat some of the symptoms of gun-related violence, it's how do we treat some of the underlying causes. So two-thirds of gun deaths in the United States every year are suicides. This is inherently a, a mental health issue. Um, and so we need to be looking at what is, what is driving people to commit suicide in the first place? How do we deal with existing mental health systems and existing mental health frameworks um, to, to intervene and, and to uh, reduce rates of, of suicide across the board, whether it's uh, related to guns or, or not to guns. Uh, same thing with gang-related and drug-related violence. How do we stem, you know, the, the the underlying causes of what drives people in in broken neighborhoods into gang violence? How do we stem the tide of what drives people to to drug addiction? How do we intervene and treat them? And I think in the long run, those types of interventions, which admittedly, you know, it's it's harder. It takes a more holistic approach. It it takes, you know, it it doesn't have that that sort of nice, easy black and white. Um, you know, we got to just take away the guns and that's the easy answer. Um, but but in the long run, that's what we all want it is a healthier America. We want safer communities. We want, uh, you know, instead of broken people, we want people who are made whole again. And, and I think that's what it actually takes to do that instead of trying to just on a surface level say we got to take away guns. If our listeners want to follow your work in addition to the website heritage.org, where can they find you on social media? So you can follow me on Twitter at Amy Swearer, that's at first name, last name, uh, or you can uh, find some of our other stuff. I'd, I'd highly recommend it's back to school season at Heritage. Uh, we have a school safety initiative. Um, if that's something you're interested in, just look up Heritage School Safety Initiative. Uh, plenty of resources there. And then also at, at DailySignal.com as well. We appreciate your time. Thanks very much for being with us here in our C-SPAN radio studios. Thank you for having me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We're also on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.